0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. And I'm being joined by Don in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. Don Watkins, I should say, for The Uninitiated. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan.
2: Hello from Germany.
1: Okay, I think our microphones are improving on a weekly basis. So hopefully you guys are enjoying that. The listeners are enjoying that. So we're going to once again, take on five stories from the news that we think are important. And probably once again, I'm going to go the longest, but I'm just going to take one. And the one that is most interesting to me right now is a, it's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that came out January 19th. So last week, and it's entitled economists statement on carbon dividends at least that's what the title is on in the online version and the subtitle is bipartisan agreement on how to combat climate change and the notable most notable thing about this is that it is very very it is signed by a very very prestigious group of people it's a combination of federal reserve chairman and then winners of the Nobel Prize, and then I believe 20, yeah, 27 of those members or chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors, yeah, former chairs. So lots and lots of of prestigious names. And what it entails is these economists are all coming together, and they are saying that we should have a carbon dividend, which that basically means tax on CO2, but they don't like the term tax, so they're saying uh, dividend. But it's not a dividend in the same normal uh, way that you just get dividends on some investment that you make. This is where, in in a sense, maybe it's called dividend because the idea is that everyone will pay a tax for all the CO2 they emit, and then it will be returned in the form of a dividend dividend. To certain people. So I want to, uh, first of all, I'd recommend that you read it, but I just want to give a quick overview and then give some thoughts, particularly one thought that really bothers me with how people, particularly economists, talk about energy issues in a way that I think is just very deeply wrong. So it begins with, global climate change is a serious problem calling for immediate international action. Okay, so I, I read that and I, I mentioned last week, or I, I discussed last week, I have a certain framework for processing certain things. And uh, there are a few elements. One, one of the elements is that I want people to look at the full context. So to look for both positives and negatives for any given policy or technology or product. And I want them to be clear about the goal. And I believe the goal should be some form of human flourishing. And I want them to give careful explanations, at least where they can. And I want them to acknowledge... Their assumptions. So th- those parts of the framework may come up this week. The thing that I notice here immediately when they say global climate change is a serious problem, calling for an immediate for immediate international action, is just okay. But what's the full context here? Because the full context in terms of serious problems calling for intermediate international action, well, in a sense, the most serious problem that exists is poverty, because that's really the lack of resources which leads to the lack of life. So in my mind, particularly because I know that energy is a fundamental alleviator of poverty, my question is, what about global poverty? And unfortunately, that is not answered, and it, there's no concern expressed for it in this entire article, which is going to become uh, important. I think when when you're talking about energy and any potential negative of energy, and you don't talk about all of the fundamentally positive impacts of energy, there there is an issue. Okay. So it says... It's got the statement of problem it says guided by sound economic principles. We are united in the following policy recommendations. Okay. If they don't say so themselves, they're guided by sound economic principles. And then it says a carbon tax offers the most cost-effective lever to reduce carbon emissions at the scale and speed that is necessary. By correcting a well-known market failure, a carbon tax will send a a powerful price signal that harnesses the invisible hand of the marketplace to steer economic actors towards a low-carbon future. I'll actually just read the whole thing because it's very short. Two, so one is it's the most cost-effective lever, uh, correcting a well-known market failure. That's going to be important. Two, a carbon tax should increase every year until emissions reductions goals are met and be revenue-neutral to avoid debates over the size of government. I'll talk about revenue-neutral as well. A consistently rising carbon price will encourage technological innovation and large-scale infrastructure development. It will also accelerate the diffusion of carbon efficient goods and services. Three, a sufficiently robust and gradually rising carbon tax will replace the need for various carbon regulations that are less efficient. Substituting a price signal for cumbersome regulations will promote economic growth and provide the regulatory certainty companies need for long term investment in clean energy alternatives. Four, To prevent carbon leakage and to protect U.S. competitiveness, a border carbon adjustment system should be established. This system would enhance the competitiveness of American firms that are more energy efficient than their global competitors. It would also create an incentive for other nations to adopt similar carbon pricing. Five, and this is the last one. To maximize the fairness and political viability of a rising carbon tax. Oh, now it's a tax. All the revenue should be... They didn't say that. I said that. Sorry. A viability of a rising carbon tax, all the revenue should be returned directly to U.S. citizens through equal lump sum rebates. The majority of American families, including the most vulnerable, will benefit financially by receiving more in carbon dividends than they pay in increased energy prices. And that is, I think this last sentence is really core to the plausibility of this peace and this argument and really what I want to challenge. So it says the majority of American families, including the most vulnerable will benefit financially by receiving more in carbon dividends than they pay in increased energy prices. That might be the most important sentence. The other one might be by earlier, I said, I quoted by correcting a well-known market failure, a carbon tax will send a powerful price signal that harnesses the invisible hand of the marketplace to steer economic actors towards a low carbon future. So it's there's this market failure, and then we're correcting it in a way that will be beneficial to most people. And as part of that, it will be quote unquote revenue neutral. So it sounds like, okay, there's a problem that we're correcting, and we're correcting it in a way that does not hurt anyone and that in, or does not hurt anyone we really care about, uh, in this case, rich people, and will actually help poorer people. So by taxing taxing the use of coal, oil, and natural gas, everyone, or at least particularly poor and middle-class people, will come out on top. So that, that may sound like it has some plausibility, particularly because this there's this idea of, okay, don't worry about the tax, because whatever money you're taxed, that's going to be given back to you, or you might even get some of other people's taxes if you're poor or middle class. So you should be like, don't, don't worry about the tax. I mean, there's no problem, right? If you're going to get the money back, there's no problem. And then it's called revenue neutral. The reason it's called revenue neutral is that's, that's the perspective of the government, which means that, that means that the government, you might be afraid of, well, the government is just taxing us. And then it's going to be, the government's just going to take more money And I don't want the government to get a whole bunch of new money. So if it's revenue neutral, that means whatever the government takes, the government will give back to somebody. The government, so to speak, will not make any more money. So this this is supposed to be reassuring. And I don't consider it reassuring at all. And I want to give you an analogy to illustrate why. So imagine that... So you, there's this idea of a social cost or a market failure, and the idea there is that there are certain hidden costs of using fossil fuels, namely negative consequences of CO two emissions that the mark that are not quote unquote priced into fossil fuels, which is a whole involved idea itself. Basically, there's this kind of hidden cost, and you can say this with just they sometimes call it negative externality. You can say this with just about anything. You can even very positive things. You can say, oh, it has significant negative externalities. So you can find negative externalities or hidden costs just about anything. So I'll take, here's here's one. Let's talk about math education. Now math education, people think of as uh, a good thing generally, but math education certainly has plenty of negative externalities because what it does is it makes populations more adept at engineering, which requires knowledge of math. And then that leads to all sorts of negative uses of technology. For example, acts of terrorism often involve technology that are made possible because some people learned math. And yet when we're paying for math education, we're not paying for that hidden cost. There's no fee that we pay that says, oh, this is the terrorism cost or this is the abuse cost. So let's say somebody says, "Oh, I'm really concerned because there are all these negative externalities of math education. So what? Let's, let's do this. Let's pass a math tax or maybe a math dividend, but let's say a math tax. And what we're going to do is we're going to double the price of a math education until math education, you know, until the negative, um, negative consequences of math education go down to some sort of prescribed level. So, but don't worry, we're going to tax math education. We're going to double the price of it. Uh, but- we're going to give all of the receipts back to everyone. We're going to give them back to everyone equally. So poor people will get even more money. So let's say that we get, um, let's say that there was average $1,000. Let's say the, the, so we pass this tax, we double the cost of math education. And then each American, we divide up all the proceeds and each American gets a $200 annual check. So it's revenue neutral and it's, it's addressing a market failure. Well, would anybody think that that money is is well spent that there that that's that there's no problem and that it's even a benefit to some people no because you'd say wait a second but people aren't learning math we've 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 enacted a policy to systematically discourage the learning of math in our society and that learning of math is so fundamental to the well-being of people in society particularly over time so what we've done is we have used revenue neutral or not isn't really the issue is we've used taxation to systematically discourage a fundamentally productive behavior. And that's that's the key idea here, is that we always need to be really concerned with any kind of taxation for manipulation, which is what this kind of thing is, that we are systematically discouraging a fundamentally uh, productive behavior. And I certainly argue that the use of energy, and that particularly fossil fuel energy, which is very cost-effective in most situations relative to the alternatives, that something you are doing to discourage the production of energy is causing huge problems. It's not only that it's causing consumers to have higher energy bills, that's, that's, in a sense, the least of the problems. The problem is that it's causing the energy bill of every single industrial person trying to do anything to be higher. So it makes mining more expensive, manufacturing more expensive, transportation more expensive. So every little input in the whole economy that makes up our standard of living is powered by energy. So if you make the whole thing more expensive, then what you're doing is you're discouraging productive activity throughout the economy. And I'll give a a historical example which didn't happen, but easily could have happened. So let's let's go ten, ten, fifteen years ago, when the 10 or 12 years ago, maybe when the shale revolution in the US was happening, was a beginning. And let's focus in particular on on shale gas. The phenomenon of shale gas, of cheap, plentiful, reliable natural gas, has led to a ton of beneficial economic activity, different factories that are powered that wouldn't otherwise exist, and then all kinds of different jobs created. There's just all these amazing benefits from having cheap, plentiful, reliable natural gas. But imagine if we had had a fracking tax, let's say 12 years ago, that doubled the price of that fracked gas. Well, all of that activity wouldn't have happened or much less of it would have, would have happened. So let's say that that discouraged 80% of that activity. Well, then the government would collect a certain amount of revenue and give it out to other people. But the, the real story would be the fundamentally productive behavior that was discouraged. And this is what we really need to be thinking about with the issue of energy is, are we f- discouraging a fundamental productive behavior in our economy? and we absolutely we absolutely are if we study it. Now, one of the big problems of this article is that it does not look at the full context in many ways, including it does not look at the actual state of the alternatives. Because if you're saying okay, something has this net, this hidden cost well, what about all the hidden benefits of energy and how do those compare to other forms of energy? Well, if, if other forms of energy aren't nearly as good at producing cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, then you're not going to get all of those hidden benefits. And what's, what's happening with uh, the actual state of energy? Well, the actual state of energy is there are, let's say, four alternatives that have any kind of plausibility, maybe five. So solar, wind, biofuels, hydro, nuclear. Now s- solar and wind are the ones that these days are most permitted. Uh, biofuels are sort of out of fashion with everyone for various reasons because they have huge inefficiency issues. And then hydro has is very potent but has a lot of green opposition and it's very limited in terms of where you can do it. And then nuclear is basically criminalized by the green movement. Now with solar and wind you have intermittency which is just a fundamental problem because you can't rely on the fuel source which means you need 100% life support by a reliable fuel source which usually means uh, fossil fuels or or nuclear to some degree but that is basically prohibited. So what what we're talking about here is people are saying, "Oh yeah, let's just pass a tax and then people will use alternatives." But they've criminalized the best alternative and these guys have nothing to say about that. These economists have nothing to say about that and they have nothing to say about the fundamental intermittency problem that the de facto alternatives actually face so they've they've seen it fit to do no research into the act or at least to have no acknowledgement of the actual state of the alternatives and also the actual state of policy so there are many other uh, issues that I have with this but the, the fundamental one that really struck me was just this 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 complete, evasion of the cost of dramatically restricting or discouraging a fundamental part of an economy and just acting like, oh, well, if we tax it and we give the tax money to people, no harm done. No, it's the discouragement of productive activity. Even if you doubled the tax receipts somehow, that would be a huge, huge problem. And I'm really glad we didn't do this in the past. And it's really scary that we're talking about doing this in the future. Now, I should say one, one positive of this piece, sort of, is that what one thing they're trying to do positively, and I think one reason why they got a lot of people to sign up, is that there's a movement to oppose fossil fuels in even more irrational ways, namely the Green New Deal, which is all about mandating very specific solar and wind non-solutions And that would be even more destructive than this kind of thing. So I think a lot of people are saying, well, if we're going to do something, then let's at least do a tax because a tax is more efficient. But if you really want to do something about the CO2 issue, if, if that's an issue for you, you have to focus on... We To promote human flourishing and reduce CO2, you need a cost-effective, scalable source of non-carbon energy. And the key obstacle to that is not a lack of a tax on CO2. The key obstacle to that is green criminalization of productive activity, particularly in nuclear. So you have to focus on that, and and these economists are not. And among other reasons, that's why I think that this op-ed is, is very problematic and will have many destructive consequences. There's other things in term, that I have issues with in terms of, I think it's very dogmatic. They don't talk at all about why they're convinced about climate. Um, they don't talk at all about the state of the field of climate science, whether it has any track record of predicting things uh, correctly, which I think it has a very weak track record. There's no acknowledgement of the value of energy to adapting to climate. So there's a whole bunch of other things but for me the elephant in the room is that they don't even entertain the idea of the cost of discouraging this um you know of discouraging like a fundamental productive input in our economy did you guys have any uh, thoughts on this
0: i mean mine is essentially your same point but from a different perspective which is like the whole or the core value of economics so one of the best books to start on economics is this book, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And here, the one lesson is that you can't just look at the obvious costs or benefits of something. You have to look in our terminology at the full context, but it's that you need to see the whole chain of cause and effect. And that's like what economists, like that is their job. Their job is to point out the whole cause and effect of different policies so that we can make good economic choices. And here, the whole focus is on pretending that there is this free lunch where we can restrict our best form of energy. And don't worry, it's not going to cost you a thing. In fact, you might come out ahead. And part of the cost that they're ignoring is the fact that not everybody comes out ahead, even on its own terms. And then, as you pointed out, the fundamental cost is you're cutting off a whole range of productive actions that are vital to human flourishing.
1: Stefan, I know you had something about the border adjustment part of it. And just to give a little context, because that, that, that was probably one of the least clear parts of it, unless you're really following this. The, the, the thing this is trying to address is, won't a tax on carbon dioxide hurt the U.S. W- by being a leader in this, by passing a, a tax on CO2 when others don't, won't we really be suckers? Because then we'll just make our goods more expensive and less competitive. And the idea here is, oh, if we just pass a border adjustment system, basically we will impose a tax on imported goods. So if other people are using a lot of CO2-emitting energy in their goods, then, then we'll tax those more, and so then we'll encourage the whole world to emit less CO2. So Stefan, I know you had some concern about that.
2: Yeah, so it's by its nature, this tax is a domestic policy, and we have no idea whether China or India are the future biggest emitters, well, follow us, anything like that. And so, this idea that we can just put a tariff uh, at the border on products and then uh, the problem will go away, um, it, that doesn't really, really do it, I think. And uh, so, one problem here is uh, the big administrative overhead just to determine how much of, let's say, a finished product like a smartphone imported from Asia into the United States. Uh, how much of that does this have in sort of embedded CO2 emissions, right? So you would have a giant accounting sheet, you know, for every piece of raw material and every process and every factory involved in this uh, production of the smartphone. Uh, you would have to account how how efficient did they do, uh, do this and uh, how much CO2 did every step take and so on. And that needs to be done for every single product in order to make it fair. And even then, if that's successful, and this will probably be the biggest agency in in U.S. history, which is saying something. uh, So even even then, it's not clear that uh, this isn't being circumvented by competitors by just taking entire chains of production out of the uh, the U.S. economy. And just, you know, instead of doing something like uh you know a memory chip from Malaysia uh imported into America to be built into some computer or some device uh why do- don't you be built just the entire device or computer in Malaysia right so you could be you could cripple the american economy without actually uh solving the co2 emission problem and uh just putting a tariff on on the border is difficult in itself, and it might not even remotely uh, solve the problem.
1: All right, yeah. In general, just when I think that when people think about the issue of fossil fuels, they have this idea that anything you do to discourage fossil fuels is a pretty good idea. So we don't need to be too careful if we prescribe some way of dealing with it. Even economists whose supposed specialty is that they're just advocating these things and they're all signing on to it and they're really not thinking through all of the implications. Okay, Don, what is your first story that you want to talk about?
0: All right, so this is the question was PG&E the first climate change bankruptcy. So PG&E the largest utility in California declared bankruptcy after being held liable for the California wildfires a while back and a Wall Street Journal news story called this the first climate change bankruptcy and then was asking, you know, are we prepared for lots more to come? And the key quote from the article is quote, California's largest utility was overwhelmed by rapid climb climactic, uh,
1: climatic. It's an, anno- it's climatic. an annoying word
0: <laughs> changes as a prolonged drought dried out much of the state and decimated forests, dramatically increasing the risks of fire. And I think this story is an example of a wider pattern whenever we're reading about energy, which is that there's some disaster it's attributed to climate change. And then we're encouraged to see this as grounds for doing something about climate change. Um, And usually what that means is that we're basically helpless to cope with climate, except by depriving ourselves of fossil fuel energy. And I think the reality is much more, it's much more complicated in one sense, but it's actually much more optimistic in another. And that's we. I want to talk about the role that climate trends may have played in this. But then this was, I think, overwhelmingly a failure of government policy and possibly corporate decision making. But I wanted to ask a couple questions of Stefan, who's researched the California wildfires in California quite a bit of depth um, that I think it would be a helpful context here. So Stefan, can you just kind of give us at a high level, what are the major causes of wildfires?
2: Well, so the immediate causes of wildfires are ignition events. So wildfires don't just come along because something, something gets a little warmer in the atmosphere or so. Uh, so we actually need an ignition event. And unfortunately, particularly in California, most of the overwhelming a uh, number of uh, uh, wildfires are being started by human causes. So, you know, PG&E uh, landlines uh, creating sparks is one example. Others are accidents that cause fires or uh, even arsenry. Uh And so recent research by the uh, United States Geological Survey indicates that something like 95 to 100 percent of fires in certain areas of California are are actually ignited by uh, human causes. And uh, another an additional side to this, of course, is um, which refers to the to the climate issue is uh, the available of fuel for the fire. So the biomass in forms of trees or grass uh, and the vegetation uh, that dries out and then serves as a fuel to fire. So that's an important factor. And in California particularly, also the wind patterns play a role.
0: And what evidence do we have that the warming of the planet has contributed to the increased fires in California or increased risk of fires?
2: So the general theory is as the planet in terms of the atmosphere, but also very importantly in terms of the oceans, warms up, we might see prolonged uh, seasons of, uh, of dryness or drought in California. Um, so that there, there will be a pattern of wet and dry phases, and the dry phases will be prolonged. Uh, and in the wet phases, more trees and grassland and so on are growing to later uh, in the dry phase than surface fuel. So there's some plausibility to this. Whether this will emerge as a long-term pattern, we will see. It's very difficult to attribute any given event to uh, climate change as such. But there's some plausibility that this will have an impact on the potential of fires. Now, as I mentioned, like 95 to 100% of fires caused by humans in terms of ignition events, that gives you some perspective that's more under our control. And uh, there are also a couple of other things to consider. So, for example... We have some evidence from uh, sediment studies and uh, also historic records that in California and elsewhere, before the ni- uh, 1900s, the, uh, the size and, and number of wildfires was actually larger than today. And there was a significant collapse in fire threat uh, during the 20th century. And so what happened? And so the modern era is called uh, uh, the period of the modern fire deficit. Why deficit? Because compared to the natural threat level of wildfires, we are actually in a period of uh, fire suppression, meaning humans through technology, you know, managing the landscape and uh, so on, have managed to drastically reduce the threat of fire that is naturally occurring. Um, and so that's a perspective. The long-term perspective is an actual decline in fire threat. Unfortunately, patterns uh, like increasing population growth in California, combined with uh, settling in more vulnerable spots, uh, creates recently more victims of fires.
1: I want to wanna jump in for a second on this, just to talk about what I think is the appropriate attitude for a human being to have toward climate-related dangers and also climate-related opportunities. And I I think of the proper attitude as as one of mastery, that we should seek to master climate, which means that we can neutralize a whole bunch of different climate threats, and then we can also enhance climate in all sorts of ways so that we can make just about any climate livable. And when we we see a particular situation like, okay, fires – the attitude has to be okay there's got to be a way that we can master this area even if it was getting three times worse in terms of just the natural hostility and there's nothing like that but even if there was how we we want to figure out let's figure out a technological and infrastructure engineering type solution what, what where's the can do attitude here where's the Elon Musk saying okay let's Let's figure out how to master this thing. Let's figure out how to have, you know, whatever. Let's figure out how to make sure that we have patterns of forests or brush or whatever that deprive Big fires of fuel. Let's let's just really figure this thing out. And that should be the attitude toward every aspect of climate. We sh- there's there's very much this fatalism and this almost desire for retribution for our sins, where people think, yeah, we're doing something bad, we're changing climate, and so all that we can do is withdraw. Let's just stop doing stuff, and then the climate will be nice to us. And the climate won't be nice to us. And why why should we think that way? Why shouldn't we just figure out Okay, let's let's really crack these things. Let's figure out how to d- deal with different things. Even sea levels, which we've talked about internally. That's that's I think the hardest one, but Where's the can do attitude toward those different things so that we can be progressively masters of any form of climate, including? And if we do that, then we'll be better off now. And all of our, and you know, all of our, um, not ancestors, but um, all of our kin, I guess, in the future will be grateful to us because we'll have innovated all these technologies that will benefit them in all of the crazy climate changes to come in the next millions and so. Years So that, that's just, there's, there's a fundamental problem where there's not this can do attitude of mastery. There's this can't, there's this can't do attitude of fatalism and just let's, and, and, and retraction and that, that saves nobody now because what is it, what good does it do if you use slightly less gas or something in your home? Like, is that really going to protect people from fires? No, um, it's just going to make your life a little bit worse. Whereas, if we really invested in mastery, then there would just be huge current and future benefits.
2: Just, just, sorry to just to add one point to this. So, one could argue about a climate policy playing a role for you know the wildfire uh, safety in the future, like in the second half of the twenty first century. But whatever you do in domestic policy or California policy it won't matter for the next couple of decades of wildfire seasons so it's it's pretty telling that people are immediately jumping oh first we need a pl- climate policy and you know after that they might say something oh we also need to do some forest management so this this won't help the people in the immediate future and so the right debate would be about what will, you know, decreasing CO2 emissions do for the people living in the second half of the 21st century or even beyond that? So it's not a not an immediate policy discussion that should be inserted in.
1: I guess we got to jump on because we're taking a little while with these stories, particularly me as always taking the longest with my first one. So Stefan, what, what story do you want to talk about first?
2: I have a story about uh, power plants in Germany. So there are two uh, top-notch uh, natural gas power plants in the German or in the Bavarian city of Erching Irschenk, I should say. <laughs> I was introducing an, an English accent into this. Um, and so they, they've been commissioned in uh, 2010 and they cannot turn a profit. And part of this is the miscalculation of the operators of this. And they miscalculated the amount of uh, coal power still being used in Germany and also um, the temporary gluts in power production that wind and solar power are creating. So this uh, erodes the uh, wholesale prices and so these natural gas plants cannot turn a profit. Um, the problem with this is that the the federal regulators won't allow these two power plants to um, retire because of concerns about grid stability. Because... What happens is uh, in Germany, renewable power gets priority for the, for the grid. And so the grid operators have to take as much renewable power in as possible anytime they're ready to produce. So when, when wind and solar are generating a lot of power, everyone has to uh, adapt to their erratic behavior. And then when they turn down because wind and solar are not available, which is often the case in, uh, in wintertime, then uh, the conventional power plants have to ramp up again. And so this is problematic for the business model for a standard natural gas plant, which is an expensive asset, but still it's required to stabilize the grid. And so you might think, okay, that's that's a really bad outcome of the German energy vendor uh, or energy transition. But it, the story doesn't stop there because now a third natural gas power plant that will be... Uh, Rarely used is going to be constructed right in the same spot, uh, but this time the uh, the uh, the uh, operator of this power plant is guaranteed to have a profit because this time the power plant from the upfront uh, isn't required to produce for the wholesale market, but instead is only. Uh, uh, there as an emergency backup capacity for you know times when solar and wind aren't able to produce. Uh, and so this is a typical example uh, of costs that are created by the use of wind and solar, which are intermittent and unreliable, and at any time of the year could produce very little or very much in an uncontrollable uh, manner. And but this the cost this creates is never uh, put on the on the accounting for wind and solar costs. So typically advocates of green energy will say, oh, solar uh, panels are, uh, you know, decreasing in price every year. And so this will be, this will reach grid parity uh, soon or already has, and it's the cheapest form of energy. And so the per kilowatt hour price is very low and will uh, replace coal and natural gas and so on. So this is this example just shows that there are a lot of hidden costs in that calculation that are never mentioned and uh this is one of the reasons why the price uh, for electricity in germany in particular since the uh, 2000 has more than doubled
1: yeah, i like i like this example this is a good example of the the point that bill gates brought up that i mentioned a couple of weeks ago he was talking about batteries but the the same point applies to power plants. And the idea is that when you're dealing with intermittent intermittent fuel sources, you need to protect yourself against very, the very long periods of time when they'll be producing very little to no power. And thus you need just crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of what they would call backup, but really life support in reserve. And if you do it in the form of a battery, that's going to really build up a lot and just, these unimaginable amounts of battery capacity. And then in this case, or you can build power plants, but then even these these power plants, not only are they running inefficiently in that they have to have this erratic stop and go traffic type energy use, but even you're going to have some of them that are barely used at all. And it's all to compensate for the erratic behavior of the solar and wind. So in general, whenever we're looking at at a system, and we know that there's an in this case the energy production system, or the, the grid in particular, when we know that there's a dependent element of the system that depends on life support, then we need to look at the full cost of that dependency. We can't just look at the dependent and what the dependent itself is directly charging. We need to see the full context of that. One other thought I just had today, I was thinking about the battery issue. Because people sometimes have difficulty thinking, well, like, why can't we just make a bunch of batteries? And how much battery do you really need? And just to get a little bit of the way there, think about somebody who owns a Tesla. And actually, um, well, actually, maybe we'll jump to Stefan's next story next, because I know you want to talk about Tesla. But here's my perspective on it. These battery cars, sometimes called electric cars, are you know, they're considerably more expensive than gasoline cars. And a huge amount of that expense is the cost of the battery. So you take a Tesla, I don't know what the current replacement costs for the battery of a Model S are, but at one point they were around $36,000 to get a replacement. So you just think for the entire, that just shows how expensive this particular thing is. But now imagine. That you live in a place where, let's say you live in Germany and, and at any given point, let's say, um, Stefan, what's a realistic amount of time like with solar and wind in Germany where they can be contributing less than 5% of capacity?
2: So there, there have been periods that went on over a week, like maybe 10 days uh, so okay. that, that doesn't happen every year, but it's, well, yeah, but okay, but it could
1: happen, right? So okay, so you have ten days now. Imagine you've got a Tesla, and and basically the solar and wind, you're trying to rely on those exclusively, and you can basically count on zero from the solar and wind over a ten day period. So now you don't just have the battery you have to pay for in your Tesla, but then you have you have the battery that you're paying for to provide life support to the battery in your Tesla, which then if you're driving. Let's say you you were driving half you know half a load a day, you'd need five batteries worth to get the Tesla to work, and that's just for a consumer driving an automobile. So you need like five backup Tesla batteries in your home to deal with this situation. And this is just a consumer use. Imagine industrial things. So just, that just gives a sense of the amount we think of batteries today in the context of using continuous reliable fuel sources that can charge the batteries at a moment's notice. But then when you lack that, you have to think of, Oh no, the battery has to be the fuel source. And that is a complete game changer in a very negative way. Given the current state of batteries, the best batteries we have are natural batteries in the sense of nature has stored for us large amounts of energy in the form of hydrocarbons for fossil fuels or in the, you know, the, um, in the, you know, atomic structure, of uranium or thorium those are that's the ultimate battery and for us to try to recreate that is something that we're just not anywhere near good at uh we're not very good at compared to what would be required to use these intermittent fuel sources so since i talked about tesla stefan what is i know you had another story your second story was about tesla right so what's going on there
2: yeah, so uh Tesla CEO Elon Musk has announced that Tesla is uh, cutting back 7% of the workforce and uh, struggling to stay profitable in the first quarter of this year. And this came a bit as a surprise because the uh, Model 3 that has been recently uh, released uh, is supposed to um you know give the company the final breakthrough into the mass market and then, you know, financial things would rapidly improve. And uh, Musk, in particular, mentioned the uh, phase out of the federal tax credit, which amounted to $7,500 per car last year. And is now reduced to half of that. And uh, over the next six months will again be reduced until it's phased out. Um, So, and the the least expensive version of the Model 3 is uh, $44,000 for a a middle class sedan uh, type of car. And I've dug a little deeper into uh, so the cost comparison between uh, gasoline and electric vehicles. Um, and so the Kia Soul uh, has two variants, one electric and one gasoline powered. And so the difference in cost is that the uh, electric vehicle costs about $35,000 uh, and the uh, gasoline version of comparable um, uh, it, in comparison, costs about $19,000 so. That's almost twice the price for the electric vehicle. And then you have some additional disadvantages. Uh, so the range for the electric vehicle is about 100 miles under realistic conditions versus about 400 miles for the gasoline car. Uh, although the 22 model of the electric uh, version promises to increase it somewhat. And then you have, you know, charging times, uh, are of course, much longer than uh, filling up the gas tank. And so it's it's easy to see that even with taxpayer-funded incentives um, of this size, this can be a hard sell to a lot of people. And so to me, this raises the questions, uh, what the advantage of giving out uh, taxpayer money to deploy these technologies like electric vehicles actually is because uh, there seem to be some huge enthusiasm in uh, terms of how quickly electric vehicles will be cost-competitive and uh, be able to quickly uh, replace uh, diesel and gasoline cars. And so my thoughts on this are that the basic chemistry of the, these batteries uh do not give this, you know, what what was coined like disruptive or exponential uh, technological improvements. There were incremental improvements and batteries are getting better. And that's that's a great thing. And it would be great to have uh, like an electric vehicle alternative, Um, but there are still barriers. And uh, so it will take some time to be actually really competitive in terms of usability and also prices, it
1: seems. All right, so... In the th- yeah, it's it's these things are. I feel in a weird position with some of these uh, per- politically popular technologies because normally my attitude toward any competitive technology or any alternative technology is is goodwill and enthusiasm because I want to think about oh yeah well if they if they handle this and this and this this could be really good and certainly with battery cars there are certain nice things about them and there are also certain challenges that aren't as appealing that you would need to address but unfortunately right now technologies in this space are being advocated as as forced replacements for something that's already working really well so we have to the claims of them are not just things that I'll say oh yeah well i i hope for the best it's they're saying no we're certain this is going to be great and therefore we can compel you to use one of this type of vehicle because because that's the right thing. And because don't worry, it's going to be safe. And thus, thus we get into this realm where in general, we'd want to have positive feelings toward people, even who tend to be optimistic as most entrepreneurs are. Most entrepreneurs are going to be over optimistic, but instead we really have to be the voice of reality because they are, they want to force their technologies on other people. Okay. Don, what was your second story?
0: Okay. So this is the BlackRock climate hoax. So BlackRock, it's one of the largest investors in the world. And for years, its CEO, Larry Fink, has been putting pressure on companies to address climate change, which he thinks is a really big problem. And he thinks it threatens uh, investors, particularly fossil fuel investors. And so last week, investors received Larry Fink's annual letter, and it contained this radical demand that All of the companies that BlackRock had a stake in had to, quote, align their business model with the Paris Climate Agreement. It's not exactly clear what that was supposed to mean, but it was certainly a major news story that you had the biggest owner or one of the biggest owners of our leading companies, including fossil fuel companies, making this declaration. So it got a lot of attention in the press, including the Financial Times and a lot of other places. And it turns out that it was a complete hoax and that think never wrote the letter. And what I think makes this interesting is that despite the fact that Fink and BlackRock have been probably the most outspoken major investors that are kind of, you could say, aligned with some of the goals of the green activists, the green movement is super critical of BlackRock. And so this group that perpetrated the hoax, Yes Men, this is how they explain themselves. They said, BlackRock's track record contradicts its own ideals. BlackRock owns more fossil fuel stocks than any other company, making them the biggest driver of climate destruction on the planet. And the the kind of one lesson I think that comes out of this is that it in trying to appease the green movement can actually make you more of a target, not less of one because like if you're endorsing their goals and saying that our 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 ultimate goal should be to reduce co2 then anything you do to continue supporting energy abundance i.e. to continue investing in or being a fossil fuel company makes you a hypocrite and that's the easiest thing in the world to attack because it's you've stated that you want to achieve this goal and you're not actually doing anywhere enough to achieve this goal and so what ends up typically happening is that you make more and more compromises and the greens are able to put you more and more in the defensive and they become more and more emboldened. And we've actually you can see this in um oil and gas companies that like companies like Exxon that have come out and said, all right, well, we're gonna support a carbon tax. And it doesn't lead the Greens to celebrate them, but actually to put even more pressure on them because they they sense blood in the water. And I mean the short version of what you need to do is have your own 100, your own ideal that you're standing for, which if you think CO2 is a problem is some form of like, we need to reduce CO2 in a way that's consistent with human progress and human flourishing, such as, as you talked about earlier, Alex, um, decriminalizing nuclear.
1: Yeah. Speaking of decriminalizing nuclear, I talked about this a bit on the, I think it's the the Tom Woods show. I don't know if it's Tom Woods or Thomas Woods is what the show title is, but that should be coming out the same day as this Power Hour, which should come out on January 23rd. So you're interested in these issues. Uh, there's a pretty extensive discussion of the Green New Deal and some associated issues, including I have a big discussion of just what it means to have a pro-freedom approach to to life and to addressing problems. And I, I talk about why it's very Problematic that in our debates today, there's not, there's pretty much the premise is always how can like how can government do more or how can government control us more to improve life versus suspecting that a lot of the problems are coming from the government dictating our lives and my, my general view of things is that it's it's the the solution to things is usually for the government. To liberate us, and even in the when you have, uh, you can listen to the podcast for more on this. But even, even when you have things that potentially require government, if you have some sort of large scale uh, shared threat, you still really need to think of it in terms of how do we address this in a way that really respects individual rights versus that gives uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and that that cohort totalitarian control over our lives. So. If you're interested in that, go check out that interview. Any final thoughts, guys, before we wrap up?
0: None
2: for me. So I just, I just hope when the uh, government subsidies end for Tesla and other electric vehicle manufacturers that they will turn this around and uh, uh, create a great alternative for everyone. And I just think that this will involve major technology changes in terms of energy
1: storage. Yeah, I mean the the a great form of man-made energy storage would be amazing for so many different things and you know for iPhones on up. So we we want to do everything we can to encourage the the conditions for that and the, the broadest set of conditions has to be a f- very free and prosperous society. And so people often think, oh yeah, well, using fossil fuels is actually, is antithetical to alternatives, but actually using fossil fuels makes you a lot more prosperous, gives you a lot more capital to invest in superior alternatives. So if you really want superior alternatives, then you want to always use the best things so that you free up time and capital to find the next best thing. And on Power Hour, we are in favor of the best things today and better things tomorrow. That's it for this week's episode. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. We're all at industrialprogress.net. So I'm Alex at, Don is Don at, and Stefan is Stefan, S-T-E-F-F-E-N, at industrialprogress.net. If you are interested in supporting the show, don't give us a donation. Think about If you know of any high-level events that might want to have one of us as a speaker, if you can think of anyone, go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking, or you can email Don at Don at industrialprogress.net, and he can tell you all about our amazing lineup of energy speakers. That's it for this week. We will be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.